0: I can have everybody in their seats, please. Good. Every time I come up here, I like to play this little game. So pay homage to Grandmaster Flash and be close to the edge. I like to get as close to the edge as I can. Because every once in a while, I just have visions of me falling over and making y'all laugh. When I was a kid, I would have loved to do that, just to make y'all laugh. I would have fell over, hurt myself, all of it. So this is my don't push me because I'm close to the edge. For those of you that know who Grandmaster Flash is, if you don't, repent and believe in hip-hop. Well, I'm excited. I, I don't know how many of y'all, I, I, my first introduction to line dancing, like where people work together, was actually square dancing. Because when I grew up, I grew up with a style of music called go-go. And when we would go to the go-go's, you don't do a lot of line dancing. It's just individual dancing. The only time you get in the line is when you're getting ready. You're circling around, and you're getting ready to knock somebody out, right? So that was it. When we was in the line, it was like, who, who, who are we going to... But a lot of times it was that. So my first introduction to just seeing coordinated people dance was, was, was uh, square dancing. I loved it. I was a kid. I never forgot. As a matter of fact, I might, I might come on Saturday just so I could emcee it. I'm from with it. If y'all, I mean, the electric slide has nothing on square dancing. If you've ever seen especially when people know how to do it. When you're around people, they be like, "Now everybody on the floor, clap your hands, stop your beat to the one man band." Yeah. They get into it. If you're free, then let it show it. grab your partner. Don't see no. Now promenade. They be like, uh, I'm like, "Man, I'm telling you, y'all are missing out if y'all don't come on Saturday, bumping into each other and all that." You got to have rhythm to square dance, and you got to listen. Whoever is doing the, the talking, I'm going. I'm trying to promenade. Y'all don't want that smoke. Y'all don't want to see that. <laughs> I heard people say, y'all think I don't got rhythm. I got rhythm. All right, so the last couple of weeks we have been, and we're, we're finishing Romans 11 today. The last two weeks, we've looked at primarily uh, the, the, the reality of all Israel, which, which I would define it as a passage that has been hijacked because, because people are trying to figure out who all uh, Israel is. Though ironically, in context... Paul doesn't seem to be concerned with it at all. It is a statement that he makes and he keeps moving. He doesn't seem to be concerned with the Gentiles who he's specifically speaking to in Romans 11 at that point in the letter. He doesn't seem to be concerned with it. It's probably because he has made numerous statements throughout the book of Romans that all Israel isn't Israel. A Jew is one inwardly. He's making these statements to try to help the Gentiles understand what's happening. But at that point, as we saw two weeks ago, the concern for Paul, beginning in, in, in verse 13 of Romans 11, his overall concern is their attitude towards the Jews about salvation. He said in verse 18, "To do not boast." He warned them, "Don't boast, don't be boastful that you're saved and that they're not right now, that you don't see them being saved." He tells them in verse 20, "Do not be arrogant." thinking you're better than these people because historically these would have been the primary people of God that all nations would have known this particular God cares about these particular people, which we, which we know as Israelites. He warns them in verse 22 to remain in God's kindness or be cut off. In other words, remain humble. Stay humble because there are consequences for that. See, everything he's warning the Gentiles not to do, is what the Israelites had done. There was an arrogance. You know, we're the people of God. Remember when Jesus and and the Pharisees were arguing, they were like, man, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, nah, Satan is your father. Oh, no, there are certain scenes when we get to heaven, I'm just going to be like, hey, Lord, can you play how that played out? I I just want to see the look on their faces when Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you would do what he did, but Satan is your father. Oh, I'm not just saying that today. He warns him in verse 25 to not be conceited. He's warning Israel. He's correcting an attitude toward the Gentiles. That they may have think that, that God has now rejected the Jews and have primarily exclusively made them the ones that are saved. But that, that but there's a problem with that. One thing we haven't looked at yet is why is Paul correcting this attitude? Why is he correcting this attitude? Well, here's one of the reasons why, because Jews were being saved. Jews were being saved. When Paul wrote Romans in A.D. 62, it is 32 years from Acts chapter 1 and 2, Pentecost. Pentecost was roughly A.D. 30. Romans was written in A.D. 62. And Paul has seen a lot in that time. Jews were being saved when Paul wrote this letter. It wasn't like they were waiting for Gentiles, or for Jews to respond to Jesus. That had been happening up to this point. If you remember in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, There's Pentecost. It's a it's a Jewish festival. And there's thousands of people there. This is not a a normal festival with some Jews there. This is a Jewish festival with maybe a few Gentiles there who were God fearing. Greeks, they called them. This was a largely Jewish gathering. And Peter, at the end of his gospel proclamation to all of these Jews, he says this in Acts two, beginning in verse thirty nine. He says this, for the promise for you is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. That 3,000 people is largely Jewish people. Those weren't Gentiles. It was Jewish. In Acts chapter 4, here's what it says. And, is, as Peter and them are still speaking just to Jews exclusively. Gentiles haven't even come into the picture yet. In Acts 4, this would still be roughly A.D. 30. It says this, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of them men came to about 5,000. That's just counting the men. The same amount of people numbered that Jesus fed with five loaves and two fish. Historians, theologians think there was roughly 12,000 people that Jesus fed. These 5,000 men, most of them probably had families and children. So maybe 10,000 plus people are responding to the message. These are not Gentiles. These are Jews being saved. In fact, why would the Sanhedrin, even? they don't care what Gentiles believe. The fact that the Jewish authorities were offended, the fact that Paul went to the synagogues and was sent to drag people who believe in Jesus out of those synagogues is proof that the, the Jews were being converted. They didn't care what the Gentiles did. Samaritan conversions happened in A.D. 31. This is Acts chapter 8. It says this, When the apostles, in verse 14, who were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what's unique about the Samaritans and why the Jews hated Samaritans so much is that Samaritans, they claim Israelite descendancy. The Samaritans believe that they're from the Ephraim and Manasseh, two of the northern kingdoms that were destroyed by the Assyrians in 722. So they claim to be half Jewish and half ethnic. And so the Jews hated them because they're not fully Jewish. So when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John 4, she was like, well, our father, Jacob, she acknowledged that she comes from the lineage that Jesus is saying. But he said, no, but she said, you Jews said we have to worship over here. And he said, there's going to come a time when you will worship right wherever you are. You see, the, the Samaritans are claiming Ephraim as their tribe. Paul's conversion in Acts 9 happens in A.D. 34. But it's not until Acts 10, A.D. 37, seven years from Acts 2, Pentecost. This is the first time that actually Gentiles are now responding to the gospel. In Acts 10, after Peter gets this vision from God, with this big blanket comes down over animals and he says, go, kill and eat. And then Peter says, no, Lord, I won't eat anything unclean. And then God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And there's a parenthetical statement that said, thereby making all foods clean. And I'm grateful because I love shrimp. And the Jews couldn't eat shrimp. And I get a pound of shrimp today for the game. This is 7, A.D. 37. Peter gets this vision. These people come to Peter. And they tell him to go with them to see this guy Cornelius. Here's what it says in, in verse 25 to 29. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I myself also am a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. These are all Gentiles. Peter said to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate or visit a foreigner. That's an important statement. See, in Peter's mind, the Gentiles weren't being saved. Salvation was of the Jews and all the conversions. Those thousands of people that were being saved were all Jews. Peter's saying here, you know, I'm not even supposed to be around you guys. So in his mind, the line hadn't become clear yet that the Gentiles are experiencing salvation. This is AD 37, seven years after Pentecost. So for seven years, Primarily, nothing but Jews were being converted to follow Jesus. Peter says, You know, it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. He preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on him. That's when Peter's like, Wow, okay. This is different. This is not what I thought. I thought the covenant was just to us, the ethnic Israelites, the Jews of the day. It's not until seven years after Pentecost, when the spirit comes and thousands of people are converted, that Gentiles are clearly now at this point a part of this reality. Peter's just figuring this out. Acts 11. See, when we read the Bible, we can read Acts in maybe 45 minutes if we just keep reading nonstop. But that's 32 years of human history. 32 years. You go from Acts 8 or Acts 10 to Acts 11, five years has passed. And here's when the Gentiles are officially accepted. This is AD 42, 12 years from Pentecost. 12 years. Here's what happens in Acts 11. This is a long passage, but it's important to read it so we can understand why Paul is correcting the Gentiles for their perspective and arrogance towards the Jews because they seem to be believing and the Jews don't. Here's what happens in Acts 11. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. That's important, right? That's 12 years later. The Israelites did not think the Gentiles were a part of salvation. And then they're realizing, whoa. They're a part of it. When Peter went to Jerusalem, verse 2, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began to explain to them step by step. I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw four footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or richly unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time. What God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men had been sent to me from Caesarea, arrived at the house, uh, had been sent to me three times and everything was drawn up again to heaven. At that moment, three men had been sent to me from Caesarea, arrived at the house where we were. The spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers also accompanied me and we went into the man's house. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in the house saying, send to Joppa and call for Simon, who was also called Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down just as it did at the just as at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John, baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. This is 12 years after Acts 2 and Pentecost. So for the first 12 years, we clearly see Jews were believing in Jesus and were the primary people believing in Jesus. Five years later in A.D. 47, there's this big hubbub. Now Paul has been preaching to the Gentiles. God chose Paul, go to the Gentiles and preach. He'd go to synagogues, they'd reject. He went to the Gentiles. So now it's 17 years from Acts chapter 2. Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem to find out. Now remember, Paul's the only one sent to the Gentiles, only one. The other 11 apostles are going, 10 of them, are are going to the Jews. Philip is the only one who went to Samaria, and the Holy Spirit was just taking Philip all over the place. (laughs) Philip had fast travel. He would preach the gospel, be whirled up and be somewhere else. Ten of the apostles clearly were preaching to the Jews. Peter and all of them were there. Paul goes to them to say, look, we got to settle this matter because they're saying these Jews believe that salvation is for the Jews. And and the the Gentiles must do all of the things that they did under Moses to be saved. Do they have to get circumcised? It was a lot of confusion because they didn't know how to process Gentiles being saved, but they knew how to process Jews being saved. But they still were missing the point because a lot of Jews thought we still got to keep the law of Moses. Listen to what it says here in Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, listen to this, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers, so these are believers in Jesus, but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said it is necessary to circumcise and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here you have people who were believers that still believed we got to keep the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And then it was in this scene that Peter stands up and says, hey, listen, he didn't say 11 years ago, but it was 11 years ago. Peter said, look, I went to go meet this guy, Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and the spirit fell on him without any circumcision. So how can we place a yoke on our brothers that we couldn't even keep ourselves? It's clear that God has given them the same salvation as us. So the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised and follow that because these people didn't follow the law of Moses at all. And the spirit fell on them right in front of me. This is Acts 15. This is A.D. 47, 17 years after Acts 2. Nothing but Jews were being saved. The problem that Paul was facing was that Paul was in Gentile regions. You see, people didn't have money like you and I could say. I remember my buddy. Right. I remember my friend, he was buying a house some years ago. And I remember saying, man, you trying to go out with us to get some lunch? He was like, man, I'm broke. And I said, for real? He said, nah, we just saved. We got about 15000 in the bank for a house. And I was like, fam, you can't take $20 of that $15 to go get something to eat. You're not broke, fam. You're just unwilling to spend money. There's a difference between I don't got it and I don't want to spend it. But he called that being broke. It was like, nah, you focused, but you ain't broke. If an emergency happened, you'd borrow from that 15 real quick. You would have that money. When you broke, you don't have that money. People in Paul's, they didn't have money. Gentiles weren't traveling the world like we do. You know, we, me and my son went on a trip to New York City, just random. Hey, what you want to do? Let's go to New York City for a couple days. All right, cool, let's go. For them, these people, that would have been like, go to, go where? <laughs> Man, that's like, we got to save up for a couple of years for a trip like that. These people didn't have money. So they weren't around. Israel. They didn't know what was happening outside of their world. So Paul is speaking to Gentiles because the world that they're around, they don't know what's happening in Jerusalem. Now, they're in Rome. It's a it's a metropolitan city. It's the New York City of their day. Very metropolitan. People are moving in and out. But it's, it's primarily about, you know, trade and commerce. And you bring stuff from your area and you sell it and take money back and you buy different things. And it's moving. It's a lot of moving parts. It's like New York City and Vegas all at once. You're doing all this stuff. But they didn't know what was happening in Jerusalem. So these Gentiles were thinking, the people that are responding to the gospel are us. The Jews that, in these synagogues locally, they're rejecting it. They didn't know that there were thousands of Jews that had already been saved by this point. Paul's correcting their arrogance based on their ignorance. Don't think that God has done away with them. You're a part of their salvation. But don't think God's done away with them. You don't know what's happening here. That's why he said in, in Hebrew in Romans 11, 1, he said, has God rejected his people? No, I'm a, I'm a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin I'm a believer I'm a Jew that accepted Jesus it's just these people just don't know Paul's statement about all Israel is connected to the Gentiles but he's correcting thinking that salvation is exclusively now for them in the same way the Jews thought salvation was exclusively for them so he said don't be arrogant because trouble will come with arrogance you're special but you're not that special Grace is amazing, but not so you can just do whatever you want and still access it. So in this last section, Paul's going to get rid of all the analogies, all of the branches and root. He's just going to speak plainly about what happened. And he's talking to the Gentiles, making sure they understand why you shouldn't be arrogant. Why you need to be careful, be humble. Be humble. And in explaining this, clarifying their salvation, and then worshiping God as a result of it, he gives us a very important lesson. For those of us right now watching, he gives a very important lesson. Here's what he said. Here's our passage today, finishing off Romans 11. Romans 11, 28 through 36. And I quote Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, They are loved because of the patriarchs. He's talking to the Gentiles about the Jews. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience. So they, too, have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has promised God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. There are two things that Paul's doing here. He's talking about generous mercy And then he's celebrating the merciful. Let's talk about generous mercy in verses 28 through 32. In this section, Paul is applying everything he's been saying, starting in Romans 9 through Romans 11 up to this point. So all of the the salvific reality of both Jews and Gentiles, because of their faith in Jesus, that's fulfilling a promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the analogies get resolved right here. So he starts off this. Regarding the gospel, right? What's the gospel? What does that mean? Well, that's the deliverer from Zion in verse 26 that he refers to. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's the salvation that comes from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the giving of the spirit, and now everyone is included. But he's correcting the Gentiles, thinking the Jews are no longer included. Regarding the gospel, he says says, they were enemies for your advantage. This is the language that he used in verse 17 about branches being broken off. In verse 20, he says broken off. Why are they broken off? For unbelief. Right? These people didn't believe God in the Old Testament. Some of these people aren't believing God in the New Testament. Then in verse 25, he calls it a partial hardening. You know why he says partial? Because Paul knows that Jews have been getting saved. He's writing this in A.D. 62, 32 years after Acts 2 and 25 years after his conversion and appointment to preach to the Gentiles. Paul knows Jews are still being saved. He has this ear. He's a he's a from Jerusalem, but he wants all Jews to be saved, every single person. And that's what he struggles with. That's why he says in Romans nine, man, like, man, I really I'd give up my own salvation for these folks because I just love these people so much, I want them to experience Christ. But they're rejecting them. So he calls it a partial hardening because theologically speaking, Jews were being saved. Paul's not looking for a future salvation for Israel because there were thousands of people accepting the gospel. Now, he just wanted all of them, just like any of us who have loved ones, right? You want your loved ones to believe in Jesus. And it grieves you that they don't. Every parent in here who has raised their children has to watch and see what's, what they're going to become. You make a lot of mistakes. You do the best you can. Some stuff you wish you could take back. Some stuff it was great that you did. But at, at some point, they have to decide that they're going to follow the Lord on their own. And you have no control over it. It's one of the toughest things any parent who raises a child in Christ will experience. Because you just don't know. And if they don't believe, you feel like you failed. It's a partial hardening because they were being saved. So he says, regarding the gospel, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. Then he says, regarding election, they're loved because of the patriarchs. So here's that language, that election language. Remember in, in, in Romans 11, 1, he said, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. In verse four, he talks about the 7,000 who bowed down, who didn't bow the knee to bear when he quotes that story from Elijah. This language is regarding election love because of the patriarch. Who are the patriarchs? They're the root from Romans 11:16. 16. They're the cultivated olive tree the people that actually followed God in the Old Testament based on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's getting rid of all the analogies and saying it plainly. And he says, since God's gracious gifts are irrevocable, Romans eleven two, 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Here's what he's saying. Look, regarding the gospel, believing in Jesus, they are enemies for your advantage. Their unbelief has allowed you to believe. But they're not always going to be enemies and not all of them are enemies because some have believed Paul himself included. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. What does he mean? The patriarchs. Why the patriarchs? Because God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless him and the people that come from him. So salvation is always a promise that God made that he's keeping. And he said, because I made it to these people, I'm obligated to these people. I'm obligated. Just like many of us. Now, th- now these things can happen, but I've, I know of people who have, you know, having a street background, I've known people who've committed murders and stuff like that. Done really crazy things that have broken their parents' hearts. But I've seen those parents, after all things settle, the dust settles, it's the mom and or the dad or the mother with children of the person still coming to visit, still putting money in their commissary so they can eat. Like that love doesn't go away because they disappointed you. God's love didn't go away because they've disappointed him. So he's saying, I still got, I'm still saving these folks. I made a promise that the people that come from this dude are going to be saved. So he's making it clear their rejection of the gospel is happening so that you Gentiles. The broken branches, the the, uh, wild olive branches can be grafted back into the tree. That's why it's happening. But there is. It's a partial hardening Because I made a promise to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And because of that promise, I'm making sure some of these folks believe. So in other words, he's correcting them. Don't think that salvation is exclusively about you. You just don't know all that I'm doing. Sometimes we even us today, we just focus on like what we're aware of and we think that's all God is doing. We think of what, what the people that we see on Facebook and the walking away from the faith and the bickering and the fighting over politics and, and race and all this stuff is happening. And we think this is the church. And then you find out in China, the church is booming. In Iran, the church is booming. In the Sudan, the church is booming. In Ethiopia, the church is booming. In other places, we just think that what we think God is doing, and what we see is only what he's doing. And Paul is saying what you think God is doing is not only what he's doing. He has a plan and a promise that he's fulfilling. You just happen to be a part of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's common for us to think that what we see is what all that God's doing. We wouldn't say that intellectually, but functionally it's how we perform. Paul is getting rid of the analogies. It's the gospel. The rejection of the gospel brought you in, but God promised that these people made a promise and he's keeping it. And he says this in verse 30, as as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so too they have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. This is a crazy thought. Here's what Paul's saying is that God is using the disobedience of some to bring salvation to others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you why this is wild because he still does that to this day. How many of us have seen some Christian leader or someone walk away from the faith and you've been sobered by that? Remember when all that stuff came out about Robbie Zacharias? I know people that were like, man, I'm pressing in, like I'm reading, I'm praying more because I don't want that to be what happens to me like his disobedience? Sobered a lot of people. When this Christian rapper from a group called Cross Movement, Brady fanatic, walked away from the faith and put it out there publicly. And that's like the new story right now. One of them. And I'm watching a ton of people reading their Bibles more, doing textual criticism, trying to find out what are some of the challenges in the Bible so that I can know them and then refute what's being said people praying more and meditating more because they don't want to fall away because God will use even your disobedience to strengthen somebody else. He will use my disobedience to strengthen someone else. He will use the tragedy of our lives to to sober someone else's life. In 2020, I thought the Lord was going to take my life so that our church would be sobered. I would breathe deep breaths, 12 to 15 deep breaths every day so I could feel some sort of tightening in my chest because I was convinced in 2020 that I was going to catch COVID, die, and that the Lord was going to use that to sober our church. And every Sunday, I thought this might be my last Sunday. Every time I hugged and kissed my kids, I thought, man, this could be it. But, Lord, I'm going to be, I'm going, I'm, you made me how you made me, so I'm going out like a G. <laughs> I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to preach the messages as people. I'm going to preach tough because I always said I'd rather have you offended at something I said than God be offended at something you did. But every day I thought, man, I'm out of here. I just know. It. I just sensed it. I just thought, man, that's going to be it. And instead, my friend Jason Lydner died. And I was like, well, wrong person. But I was, I knew somebody that was unexpected was going to go. And that sobered me. A member in the church that we were mutual friends with him, she sent me this thing that he had written about his goals for the next year, for 2021. All these godly goals, she sent them to me, and I just read them. And I remember thinking, like, wow, he was a godly dude. I miss him. And then shortly after that, Kathy went home. God uses all of that. He'll use your suffering. He'll use your disobedience to bring about mercy for other people. So what Paul is communicating here, that's what's happening. I was convinced it was a pressure that I, had, that I had placed on myself that nobody knew about. I didn't tell anyone until later on until the end of the year. I didn't tell anyone. I just knew like that was it. I'm going to be faithful, Lord. When I stand before you, what I'm not going to give an account for is being a coward and not challenging what I thought was happening. And if people didn't like it, they didn't like it. If they had to leave, they had to leave. But I was not. Me and Mike take very seriously that we got to stand before the Lord and give an account. And there's a lot of stuff I got to be like, Lord, my bad. But there's some things I'm not giving an account for by his grace. And being a coward is one of them. If it's affecting our church, I'm going to say it. And he'll use it. He'll use the disobedience. He used the disobedience of the Jews to give mercy. So when God says he works all things together for the good of those who love him, believe it. Believe it. Believe it. Paul says this in in this verse, as you once disobeyed God, but now, now have received mercy through their disobedience. So they, too, have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you so that they also may now receive mercy. Paul said, look, these people are going to receive mercy right now. These Jews are receiving mercy now. If he's thinking of a future salvation, I can't tell. He's thinking right now these people are going to receive mercy just like you did. So God used their disobedience to give you mercy, and he's using your salvation to give them mercy. Because their salvation, your salvation is showing them that they're disobedient. You ever heard somebody confess something and then you realize, dang, I do that too? And their sobriety makes you be like, man, I need to step up. I need to stop playing around because I do this too. But you're watching somebody else put it out there. Or somebody else gets caught in the sin that you do and you're like, man, I need to go ahead and this is a word from the Lord. Let me just stop. Reflect a little because I don't want to be out there like they are. I'm not being self-righteous. I just don't want the smoke. (laughs) Paul is clarifying the language of the Jews and the broken branches so that the Gentiles have been grafted in. He's making it plain. All this is about Jesus, his death, their rejection. You're accepting. You're accepting. And then now that mercy is coming back to them. He's reiterating this reality that mercy is why anyone is saved. It's a generous mercy. He uses disobedience to bring about mercy. He'll do it in our lives. He does it in our lives. Whenever I hear pastors fall or something, man, we would be like, man, we got to tighten up. You have no idea how many conversations me and Michael have. We will hear about some pastor that fell in, and we just be like, hey, young, hey, young. Choke me if you think I'm going, you know, whatever. Man, punch me in my face, whatever, if you think like. We have those conversations all the time. Because in this day and age, people are just falling like crazy. And a lot of them are justifying it because of stuff like church hurt. Like, because I've been hurt by the church, like now, like I'm not, I no longer believe. I'm changing my, all these things. And it's like, wow. There's a lot. And some of us have experienced real hurt. But walking away from the faith, though, that's an eternal hurt. they like, it's not, it's not worth it to me personally. Verse 32, a crazy, another one of these verses. What God says it. what Paul says this: for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. It sounds like God is making everyone disobedient, is what Paul's saying. Now, what Paul is saying is all disobedience is accountable to God. All disobedience is accountable to God. Every sin is accountable to God. And because all disobedience is accountable to God, all mercy towards the disobedient happens on account of God. So what he saying is, all have been prisoned in disobedience, so that he may have mercy or all. All the disobedience. And that mercy is toward who? The disobedient on account of who God is. This is a fascinating reality. It's as much as we've been offended and hurt by others. Ultimately, it's always towards God. And he's the one that everyone's accountable to. All that disobedience. I mean, can you imagine, like, right now, as we're talking at 11, 18, 19 a.m., almost every sin that could be happening in the world is happening right now. Someone's being murdered, someone's being raped, someone's getting OD'ing off drugs, someone's robbing a bank, someone's lying, someone's stealing, someone's being kidnapped, someone's being tortured someone's committing adultery all this stuff happens every second and God sees all of it and the world still exists he sees all of it every thought all the stuff that doesn't come out just the hatred the bitterness the sinful judgment all of it that doesn't come out he sees all of it all that disobedience is accountable to him And because it's accountable to him, he's allowed to give mercy to whomever he wants to. It is insane. The fact that we have mercy, at least to right now, as we know, currently believe, is incredible. This leads Paul, after highlighting this generous mercy, it leads Paul to celebrate the merciful. Here's what he says in verse 36, 33 through 36. He says, this: oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There are three different things happening in these three verses. There's a statement, there are questions, and then there's a conclusion. Here's the statement, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Here's where Paul is giving us. A valuable lesson. How do you cultivate awe in the Lord? How do you grow in being amazed by God? We often are temporarily in awe of God when he does something for us specifically. When he answers a prayer or someone gets saved or whatever it is, we're temporarily in awe of God when we see him do something, but primarily and specifically when it benefits us, when it's something that we ask for, we're blown away. Blown away. How do you cultivate awe? Do we know how to do that? What Paul is doing here is giving us a lesson and how to cultivate all, Because consistent awe of God will come because of who he is and how he does things. Not when he does things or if he does things. This is what Paul is after. Look at what he celebrates. Here's what he celebrates. He celebrates the wisdom, the knowledge and judgments of God. That's what he's celebrating, the wisdom. He says, oh, the depths and riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Celebrating the wisdom, the knowledge, the judgments and how God does things, the ways that God does things. Knowledge is just information. He's celebrating that God knows all the information there is to know. All the information there is to know about any situation. God knows. One of my favorite scenes in in Marvel's Endgame was when they were fighting with Thanos. First of all, how did Thanos grab a planet and throw it at Tony Stark? Like, that's just crazy. When you get hit with a planet, like, it's like, I'm done. Superhero life is over. You got hit with a planet, fam. But So they're fighting with Thanos. And then Doc Strange is sitting there on this rock, and he's just like. He's moving his head. We're like, what is he doing? And then Starks is like, Doc, what's going on? He said, I've looked at 15 million ways and there's only one one way possible. God knows all the ways possible. What Doc Strange was doing was an ode to God. He knows all the possibilities, all the potential ways. And Paul is saying, man, who can do this? Who has the information that God has? And who does the kind of application that God does with that information? That's the wisdom. Knowledge is information. Look both ways before you cross the street. Wisdom is application. Looking both ways before you cross the street. You ever pulled out and got hit? Man, why? Because you was on your phone. You was looking this way only. You ain't look both ways. So you had the knowledge, but it didn't become wisdom. And now it will be because you got to get that car looked at If that happened to you today, this is just a prophetic word for you. This wasn't, I mean, it wasn't intentional. I'm not thinking of nobody's specific. This happened to me before. I pulled. I used to pride myself on being a good driver. Everyone's a good driver until you feel that boom. And you're like, what, ha- what happened? And then you realize, oh, it wasn't from the back. It was in the front. It's my fault. flag. That's when it all comes together. That's when all it comes together about just the disobedience of your driving attention span and all of it. All comes together. Paul is celebrating the wisdom, the knowledge, the judgments or the decisions that God makes based on his understanding of all the information. He's celebrating that. He's celebrating what God knows and what God does. The depths, the riches, this is what he's celebrating. This is an honest question. This is an honest question. It's when I've been trying to grow an honest question. How often do you do that? How often do you celebrate the wisdom of God totally devoid of a prayer that you've prayed? How often do you celebrate just the knowledge that God has and the way that he does things? Or do you more complain about those things? Are you more offended at the way God does things? Do you think with the information he has, he should do something different? And that's usually how you would do it. Then that means you can't celebrate God's wisdom. You can't celebrate his judgments. You can't celebrate his ways. If he needs to do things to make you feel like he's a good God, then you've already lost. Because the fact that you even have the cognitive ability to question God is a gift from God. Paul is celebrating what God knows and what God does. We just take it for granted. Every once in a while, just say, Lord, thank you that I can move my fingers like this because there are some people that used to be able to do this. They can't do this anymore. I used to thank God for every deep breath I took in 2020 and that I didn't feel any tightness or anything happening. I used to thank him because I knew as soon as I felt that, I was like, well, this is it. Here's where it begins. I used to thank him. for When COVID started, he taught me a lot about, man, you better be grateful for just the simple things. It's the fact that you can just breathe, that you can cognitively think. It wasn't the first time I thought that, but it was for the first time it was like, I'm focusing on this right now. Because I thought, man, this is going to be my year to meet him. And I want to at least be like, I took what I thought was going to happen and tried to grow. I wanted to grow in just my awe of who God is and what God does. But the context that Paul is thanking God in is the context of salvation. Paul's thanking God for his wisdom, his knowledge, his judgment, his ways, and salvation. Do you honestly, honestly do that? I'm not judging you. It's a question. It's a question I ask myself. It's something that I've been putting into practice the last couple of years. Because when you're grateful for those things, some of the other things you don't take as serious, you recognize it like, look, we live in a fallen world. Stuff is going to happen. I'm not going to like it. From the smallest to the biggest, like, do you actually thank God and appreciate his wisdom, his judgments, his ways? Or do you only thank him when he answers a prayer that you had? That's not thanking him for his judgments and wisdom. That's thanking him for doing something for you. But can you thank him for just being himself? This is what Paul is doing. He's cultivating all. He is blown away by this. He's talking about the riches and the depth of the riches and the wisdom. Like how deep does this go? He calls it unsearchable, untraceable. He's saying that it's impossible to discover how deep God is. And it's impossible to comprehend who God is. God is incomprehensible on some level, and Paul is okay with that. Don't forget, this is the same Paul that said in Romans 9, I I wish all these people would be saved, but they're not. And he never blames God for that. He never blames God for the things that have happened in his life. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said he prayed to the Lord three times to take this thorn in the flesh out. And the Lord said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul said, good, then I'm going to boast in that weakness. He never complains against God because he appreciates, he's, he's cultivated in awe of God. And when you cultivate in awe of who God is and what he does, it puts you who you are in proper perspective. When you don't do that, then it's easy to complain about God. It's easy to be offended and not work through those things. It's easy to walk away from the faith. The gospel never promises that we won't be hurt. It just promises if we persevere, all that pain is going to go away. Never promises that we won't be church hurt, or never promises that we won't have mental health issues. Never promises that we'll be our marriages will be perfect. Never promises that our children will believe. Never promises that we will get married. Never promises that we won't experience any trial or suffering. Never promises that. Never promises that we'll get the promotion. Never promises that we'll get a job. Never promises any of those things. But promises that whatever you go through, I got you. You're not going to like it. You're not going to like everything. Remember Jesus, John the Baptist was in prison. John the Baptist was in prison. The dude who leapt in, his, in the womb as a baby, he was filled with the Spirit in six months. Golly, some of us ain't been filled with the Spirit a long time. And this dude was filled with the Spirit in six months. Some of us ain't had that feeling and that pep in our step, and he's in the womb flipping up, up and down. So much so that his mother, Elizabeth, just broke out in song, and she couldn't even sing. She just started singing. That John the Baptist was in prison. And sent his disciples to asked Jesus, are you still the Messiah? And Jesus said, blessed are the ones who were not offended because of me. He said that because there are going to be things in your life that tempt you to be offended and walk away. But if you don't, you're blessed. And how do we, how, what do we do with those? We don't wait till these things happen and then fight through them. We cultivate all when they're not happening. And we don't cultivate all just for prayers that we want to answer. We cultivate all because of who he is is unsearchable as rich as his character all of this how does he sustain the whole world how does God become a human being yeah. and in order to, to, to among violent people to be killed violently just so that he can provide salvation through violence mm-hmm. he meets us on our terms and says man believe in him what God is like look I'm going to die in your place so that you don't have to be punished so when you die like the thief on the cross you're going to be with me in paradise and you mad at who people vote for come on we mad at what people said on Facebook, man. You, if you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven when you die. See, the problem is not. The problem is we don't think enough about up top. We don't cultivate all enough. We don't cultivate all in the destination. if yep. you just sat down one day and just meditated on what heaven's going to be like, not because somebody that you know and love is in the hospital getting ready to die, but because you ain't got nothing else to do but just let me just meditate on what God says about who I am and where I'm going and just being all of that. It's not impossible, brothers and sisters. It's not impossible to do this. God's not going to make us though. Paul is cultivating all with this statement. How unsearchable is judgments. Paul is in all that the Gentiles are a part of Israel. He's in all that God uses disobedience to provide mercy And then he gets to questions in verse 34. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Look at these questions. Three questions. He basically is saying, man, who else thinks like this? Who else can do this? Who else knows what God knows? That's what he said to Job. When Job was suffering in chapter 37, God shows up and said, all right, Job, let me ask you a couple of questions. Stand up. Let me ask you a few questions. Let me just check check in with you. Before I answer what happened to you, let me just ask you real quick a few questions that lasted for four chapters. And it was like, okay, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge so easily dressed for action as you are? I will question you. And you will make it known to me. Can you name the stars in the sky? Can you tell the ocean come this far and no further? You know what God was saying in that? Who do you think you are? Yeah. Yeah. You're talking to me right now. Yeah. Now, y'all could say whatever y'all want to me. I ain't the Lord, right? Y'all, Pastor, you can say whatever you want. But like, when we talk about who do you think you are, right? right. Yeah. And even then, God doesn't get offended. I'll never forget. In 2000, 2001, I don't know what happened. I had, <laughs> I had my throat just swelled up. I was a new, I was a, I was going to church. I was a believer. I was living for the Lord. Me and my brother were sharing a townhouse out in Gatesburg, man. I was going to a church called Covenant Life. And I was really pursuing the Lord hard. I felt like I was getting up early, like four in the morning, memorizing scripture. I just was, I had just, I was just doing a bunch of stuff. And so my throat just started to get sore and then it swelled up real bad to the point where I couldn't even talk. There was this game we used to play called Chubby Bunny where you put all these marshmallows in your mouth and you try to say Chubby Bunny without spitting them out. And it doesn't sound like, it sounds easy until you get about 25 marshmallows in your mouth. It felt like I was playing Chubby Bunny with no marshmallows. And I remembered I was trying to read, and I was angry at God. And I remember looking up at my son, and I was like,
1: "Mm,
0: mm, mm, mm." and I don't know if this happened or not, but I just felt like, God just chuckled, just felt like he just chuckled. And I just thought, what in the world am I doing right now? The next morning, my throat was healed. It was gone. Just like that. No, no penicillin or nothing. It was just gone. That's what you take sometimes for that stuff. If you're allergic to it, don't say Pastor Curtis, take penicillin. I don't want I don't want no emails or nothing. I don't want it. I'm just, that was for me. It was a story. I'm not advocating you take penicillin. Check with your, pedi- your, t- check with your doctor, your primary care doctor, to find out <laughs> if you should take pediatrician. I know how it goes. Pastor Kurt said this. It's his fault. If your throat swells up, then argue with the Lord and he'll heal that bad. <laughs> I just felt like God was like, fam, what, what you talking about, bro? But I love you. That was going on the next day. I just looked up and said, God, you. I, I talked to him. I just went, God, you wow, You wow. That's why I said it just have fun. Who knows what God knows? Who counsels the Lord to make decisions? Don't think for a moment when God was like, Adam, where are you? He didn't know where Adam was. That's what I love about the Lord. Sometimes he'll just be humble with it. He'll just be like, what are you doing right now? I actually knew you was going to do this before before you were created, before the foundation of the world. Adam, where are you? Oh, we're hiding behind here. It's just like the Lord is just like, man, I'm just going to relate to you guys the way you see the world sometimes. The Lord doesn't know that I love. You know, one of the things I love the most is Jesus, because he denied himself. He didn't allow himself to be fully God. He there were times to be a full human being. He just didn't know how people would respond. So he would do these miracles and people would still not believe. And he said he marveled at their lack of faith. He was shocked. Like, wow, (laughs) y'all, y'all still don't believe this dude was born blind. He'd been blind for 40-something years, and I held him, and y'all still don't believe? Like, what demons do that? Demons take sight. They don't give it. Who has been his counselor? This is who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Who does God owe? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a word for us, a gentle Subtle adjustment for any of us who fall into this category. God does not owe you a suffer free life. He doesn't owe you all of the things that we desire. He doesn't owe us that, but he blesses us and he gives us things, but he doesn't owe us. And sometimes our struggles and complaints towards God are because we think he owes us something because he can do all these things. But he never said he would. Most of the things that people walk away, that I've known of, a lot of things that people walk away from the Lord for are not one verse that are promised to them. They're all just desires that we have, most of them. There's some legitimate things that people have experienced. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying a lot of things are just like, man, I just, I mean, even the stuff we go through, I didn't want to be hurt like that. I thought because I'm a Christian, the Lord wouldn't allow that to happen. I thought that my pastor would always be like this, or I thought that this, or I thought my marriage, because we're Christians, it would be like this, or I thought if I raised my kid... It's all stuff that we want, that we hope, and they're good things, but sometimes the Lord says, like, nah, this is going to train you. Now you're John the Baptist. What are you going to do? We're John the Baptist. And the message is, don't be offended. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. How do you cultivate resisting the temptation to be offended and critical and judgmental of God and We're so horizontal that we just need to stop and just once a week just say, you know what? Today, just once a week, just say today is all of God day. Mm -hmm. I'm not worried about what I don't have, what I think I need, what's happening. I'm just going to focus on who you are, what you do, what you've done. The fact that you allow me to even struggle and complain against you. (laughs) I'm going to just celebrate. I'm going to cultivate all. In this day and age, brothers and sisters, it is more important than anything we can do because don't think for a moment that you solidify. A lot of people that we thought were solidified is just walking or offended or changing positions, perspectives. We need to cultivate awe of God. We need to cultivate awe and then we get to this conclusion like he did. For for him, for from him and through him And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. When it's about God's glory, we can celebrate him. When it's about what we want God's glory to give us, it's hard to trust him. It's hard not to judge him. It's hard not to be offended because these things need to line up in a way that, but when we're just celebrating, it was about his glory it's like, all right, Lord, if this glorifies you, it glorifies you. I remember saying multiple times in 2020, Lord, I feel like you're going to take my life, but if this glorifies you, then do it. I cried sometimes thinking that I would miss my children, my wife, and so forth. I would miss this church. But I was like, Lord, if it glorifies you, do it. Take it. I belong to you. I said that almost every day. My eyes water just like this. like, Lord, I'm yours. Do what you do. It wasn't my time, but I was carrying that burden all year. And every time I heard a complaint, it was like, they have no idea what I'm going through, too. I just said, Lord, there were times I was like, man, go ahead, speed it up, man. Let me come home now. (laughs) Speed this up. We belong to him. And when it's his glory, we can celebrate him and who he is what he's done, what he's doing. I'm not going to always like it. I don't always like it. I hate. I don't always like it. I hate certain things. And the Lord knows it. And I tell him, I hate that you let this happen to these people. Or I hate that this is happening in my life, Lord. I hate this. I, but I'm honest with him. I tell him. But I'm cultivating awe. So when those things do happen, it's like, all right, Lord, you've already proven yourself to me. This is about me proving myself to you. The notion of trusting God is an ironic one. It's an ironic one because he hasn't done anything to be untrustworthy. We have to learn how to cultivate. all. this is what Paul is doing at the end of Romans 11. And now that he's done that and, and brought everything that he needs to present for to explain salvation, beginning in chapter 12, now he starts focusing, okay, now this is how you live as a believer. From chapter 12 through 15, now he's going to focus on, all right, this is how you live now. Let's deal with how you live. And that will start next week. Let's pray. Father, how unsearchable are your ways? Those aren't, that's not even, those aren't even phrases that we say. It feels awkward to to say that, but it's just a true statement. What have any of us done that we need to be repaid by you? Every ounce of faithfulness that we have in our lives is because of your spirit given to us. And your desire. Thank you that Paul is correcting the Gentiles about not being arrogant. May that spill over to us about arrogance towards you, about things that you're not doing or ways or jealous of what we see somebody else receiving from you. Lord, we you give us all ability to breathe, to think, to live, things that we just take for granted. It's not until you lose those functions that you realize that there was it was a joy to have them. I mean, if COVID taught us one of many things is how challenging life is when things are taken away from us, things that we took for granted, even like friendships. Lord, you are the depths of your mercy. It's generous. The wisdom, the knowledge, the judgments. Lord, help us to cultivate awe in that. Help us to just take one time a week and just dedicate that particular day to just, just focusing on, even this past, just reminding ourselves. Because we, we, we're in church two hours a week. We're in our D groups two hours a week. That's four hours a week. But there's 164 other hours that we're inundated with all these kinds of things that don't have anything to do with cultivating all of you. The ratio is small for how much we devote to you versus how much we live devoted to other things. So Father, I pray that you would help us to to take this lesson at the end of this, this, this amazement that Paul has of you. And it's not based on anything specifically, a specific prayer answered. For Paul wants all the Jews to be saved, but he accepts that they all won't be, because not all Israel is Israel, and yet, he still finds it purposeful to be in all of you as one who was beaten badly in the that We know in second Corinthians 11 as one that you gave a thorn in the flesh to him and would not take it away after prayer three times. He still found it necessary to be in all of you. May that trickle down to who we are because of who you are. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray
1: amen amen uh thank you pastor kurt for that word thank you very much uh got a question here um besides today's passage where else can we go in scripture that shows us that god hasn't done anything to uh, to show us that he's not trustworthy Uh,
0: say say that again i'm an
1: idiot um basically uh what passages can we go to besides the one you shared today um to show us that God is not trustworthy.
0: Is not trustworthy.
1: That He's not, untrust- oh, not oh, untrustworthy. Me, me. That, yeah, I'm sorry, forgive me. That He's not untrustworthy.
0: Because I was like, wow, man, I'm a, I'm a terrible preacher. Um, <laughs> okay, so that God is not untrustworthy. Where else can we go? Mm-hmm. Whew. Well, where do we begin? Um, we can start with Genesis three, right? Genesis three twenty one. Where God, Genesis 315, where God promises to redeem Adam and Eve's sin instead of destroy them. Right. We can go to Genesis, you know, eight, where God decides to spare Noah and his family so that they can repopulate the earth instead of destroy everyone. Uh, We can so we there's a lot we can go through the Old Testament. We can see God being faithful to take Israel out of Egypt and provide for them. Exodus 7, 18, and 19, providing for them meat and bread, man, from heaven, giving them salvation, right? We can go to him including like Ruth and Rahab into a, a lineage of, of mercy. These are two women who were Gentiles that were a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. You know, we can go to, if you want to be more new, you know, more in the New Testament, man, I mean, almost like where can you not go to really find that, to be honest? I mean, you look at 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, especially verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. You look at John 17, verses 20 to 23, where he's praying for the future believers, for us, praying that we would be one as he and the father are one. Oh, man. Um I mean, I, I you know I don't t- t- uh, you know I, I could I, the faucet is open you know I can go I can go a lot. Look at Revelation. Look at Revelation. I mean, when it's all said and done, Revelation twenty-one seven and eight, in particular seven, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Uh, incredible, incredible. Second Peter one, you know five one through nine, but nine. Look, if you're not growing, you you're forgetting that you have that God has saved you. You're forgetting who you are if you're not making progress in your life. And you're walking the Lord. Uh, so much of it. First John one. I mean, I mean, I, you know, first John one. You know, if we walk in the light, we have faith. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And we confess our sins. And these are all things that like God doesn't have to do. that. Like we have to start with the premise that God did not have to provide salvation for us. And he definitely didn't have to provide it by experiencing the violence of humanity. Like the very violence that humanity loves to do is how he decided to bring salvation about. Like we have to start with the fact that like man, he didn't even have to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I think, then I think, then I think real practically, just look around you. Think about diseases like Parkinson's.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Where people can't even stop shaking their hands. Mm-hmm. And they but they can't even just think about those things. Think about the 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 ability to be able to think. You know, think about the the type of mental health things that prevent people from even being able to think as clearly. Like you don't have those. Think about Tourette's Syndrome. Someone who just blurts out something uncontrollably seemingly. Like things that you just don't even have to experience. A lot of confusion and different things that you just don't have to experience. Your ability to walk. I know a brother that just started to get uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and it started to change. This is why I respect like our brother Dean. Just working through it and still trusting the Lord, his family. Man, I'm grateful for the Henshaws. Walking through it and still believe. I still believe. Like those, I mean, God's untrustworthy in his word and he's already untrustworthy in our lives. We just got to take time out of all the distractions and acknowledge it. There really should be no genuine complaints in light of what we deserve versus who we are. That's what I would say, bro.
1: Thank you. That was, uh, I think that was the last Sweet. question that I saw. Yeah. Good. I'm good with it.
0: All right. All right let's get yeah. them uh, them stale crackers out and <laughs> and be reminded of God's grace. I promise you. We we might switch to real bread or something. Look, look. Some of y'all now y'all need no real bread. Y'all eat them crackers. Last for bread. They'll be coming up in here wanting to eat a meal. <laughs> hey, can somebody grab me one? Would somebody please grab me one? I don't have one. Can somebody grab me one?
1: Um, let's go ahead and, and stand Thank to our feet again. This will not be uh, not be long at all, especially after a message like that. Um, one of the one of the things that's so wise about God and so mind blowing is that in our experience and our observation, we don't see life coming from death. We see life coming from life, but our God uses death in a in, in just to even try to wrap your mind around how could God even die. That's that's a whole, that doesn't make sense at all. But then that he would use death to bring life, that he would break his body in order to expand his body. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. People are walking away from this God. And he's going to deal with that. But as we heard this morning, let us not quit running the race because he gave his life, which seems impossible. It's too, it's too magnificent for my mind to think of how God could die. That's impossible. But yet that's what Jesus did, and he was the Godhead in bodily form. But he gave his life, laid it down to give us life. And so for people who know him, who trust in him, who embrace the life that he gives, we now take this wafer, which represents his body, and we eat it. And we say thank you. God does not bleed, and yet Jesus shed his blood for us. We now drink the juice, which represents that holy blood shed for us for the remission of our sins, and we drink. And we thank you, Father. We thank you. Jesus, we thank you, Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, for what you've done for us. Thank you for making us new creations, as the song says. Thank you for grabbing a hold of us. Thank you for making us for you, and thank you for bringing us to you. Lord, would you bring more to you, Lord? Oh, the days look like they're shortening. Many are walking away. But, Lord, would you keep us in the love of you, and would you help us to do all that we can to keep ourselves there as well? Thank you that you give us your spirit to help us to do so. Bless our week, bless our service, bless our uh, service, by that I mean how we serve, bless how we give, bless how we connect, bless how we increase. And may we particularly give ourselves over to increasing in the knowledge of you and focusing on how wise you are, how you do things differently than we would do things. And then, Lord, would you help us to intentionally love in a way that you call us to love and not just those who are in our family but those especially who are in our church family and even those who may in our church family be more of a challenge for us to get along with than others lord help us to love love is a choice help us to choose the love Lord, we ask you these things in Jesus' name and we thank you so much that you're with us and you'll never leave us nor forsake us, that you will bring to completion that which you started. So we thank you and we praise you and we give you glory and honor. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this family. In Jesus' name, amen.